Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Okay, welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is another half an hour of science on your radio device. My name is Chris, and today I'm going to be talking about something you may have seen in the news. Uh, news about a one of the last resort antibiotics finally succumbing to um, bacteria getting resistant to it, uh, found on a pig farm in southern China. Uh, yes, I'm going to be talking about what that is all about and whether it really is the end of the world. Um, spoiler, probably not yet, but yeah. The world's going to end anyway, so hey. At some point. At some point, yes. We shall talk about what that's all about. been a while since we had a story about the antibiotic Armageddon, so I'm looking forward to talking about it again. Oh, we're so optimistic here on Lost in Science. Hey, well, look, we try, I'll try and spin some hope into it, okay? Uh, <laughs> Stu, what do you got for us? Uh, I was doing some reading and, and discovered that the, the thing that everyone has been falling all over themselves to get uh, made in the world is electronics embedded in plants. So finally... Uh, some Swedish scientists have managed to, to, to actually make this breakthrough of having uh, electronic circuits in plants. And uh, I'm going to look at what that means and why did they do that exactly. Right. Coming up next, silicon chips from your electronic potatoes. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Manisha. Um, today I actually have Inka Valtim in with me to talk about some brolgas, which you may have seen in the news recently. So we'll talk to her about her work and see what's up with the brolgas. Excellent. Well, welcome to the show, Inka. And, uh, Thanks, Chris. That's right. On with the show. All right. You are listening to Lost in Science now. Antibiotic resistance uh, is something that bacteria have been involving. Their resistance to our antibiotics that we use to to fight them, and this risks returning us to the dark ages of infections, bacterial infections, from dating back from before penicillin was introduced. So people are getting understandably quite worried about what this means for the future of medicine and the future of humanity. Uh, gradually, the various antibiotics we've been using, the various drugs, have been kind of falling off as bacteria become resistant. And there's just a few left that are kind of a last resort, as it's been. And um, one of these is a drug called colistin. Uh, and this is the one that recently there was a study published in the Lancet Infectious Diseases about a new bacterial resistance to that, which is getting people quite concerned. Mm. So, um, yeah, well, it's it may not be a huge concern with this particular antibiotic, I should I thought we should say. So this is one that's actually been around for a very long time. Uh, it was first released in, onto the market, I suppose, in 1959. Um, but the reason why it's only just kind of becoming an issue is because it hasn't been used much because it's actually rather toxic. It can do things like cause kidney failure and, and this sort of thing. So, so it's really bad for bacteria, but it's not all that good for people. No, this is why it's called a bacteria, an antibiotic of last resort. It seriously is the last resort. They don't use this unless they really, really have to, I guess. Um, but yeah, but the fact that it's been around for a long time means that it is very cheap. Uh, you know, it's out of patent and, and this sort of thing. Uh, and so it's an appealing thing to make for um, livestock producers, the kind of people who run factory farms and use antibiotics to increase the growth rate of their animals. 
Uh, now, the way it does this is not totally, no one's quite sure how it, these things, antibiotics, improve growth rates. It's possibly something to do with it, changing the, the gut flora in the, in the animals. Um, but yeah, it just seems like giving them antibiotics seems to increase their growth rate. So yeah, it's widely used in uh, farming. Um, what this particular uh, antibiotic does, it's, um, it basically dissolves the fats in the outer cell membrane of bacteria. And so this can either kill them outright uh, or it can sort of weaken the membrane and let other antibiotics in to do the job. Uh, so, yeah, this is um, the one that bacteria are becoming resistant to. This is not the first time that bacteria have evolved resistance to this particular antibiotic. Um, it has been seen in the laboratories before, but that normally takes a very long time. You need to have a, a you know, prolonged exposure of a colony of bacteria to this antibiotic, and eventually they, they develop mutations, and they're selected for those mutations, and they, and they develop resistance to it, um, as you'd expect, uh, evolution going the way it does. But um, this particular study that was published, the scientists found a new gene that can be transferred from bacteria to bacteria. Now, this is, um, it was in Escherichia coli, or E. coli, the poo bacteria, I suppose everyone's familiar with. Um, and this was found on an intensive, uh, intensively farmed pig near Shanghai in 2013. Now, they called the gene MCR1, which stands for plasmin-mediated colistin resistance, and it's found on these things called plasmids, which are kind of little circular loops of DNA that can be passed from, as I said, from bacteria to bacteria, from cell to cell, and have some kind of weird prokaryotic sexual encounter, I suppose you could think of it as. Yeah, so they what this means is the bacteria don't actually have to evolve it themselves. They're having you know fresh mutations each time. They can just pass it on. It can spread very quickly through um, through a population, um, even from species to species, as we'll see. Uh, and because they're so, this is quite a fast way of getting this resistance spread around. But also, I suppose with these particular ones, because they're this is on farmed animals where they're using uh, multiple antibiotics because they're using the colistin to help them use their other antibiotics work better. You're getting bacteria that are resistant to multiple kinds of antibiotics, and so they're talking about possibly what they call pan drug resistant, as in this is germs that nothing will kill. So, like in this study, what they did, they they looked for this particular gene, this MCR1 gene. In, um, in various sort of samples. They found it in E. coli collected from uh, 21% of pigs they found in slaughterhouses. They found it in 15% of samples of raw pork and chicken meat. So this is the actual the meat, uh, not the actual live animals. And they also found it in 1% of hospital patients that they sampled who had infections in, in the hospitals in, in these particular regions. So that's the 1% doesn't sound like a, a big number, but... It, the fact that it's jumping to humans or it's being found in humans kind of is a big deal, especially because these are people who already have infections. Um, they also found this, um, this gene in other hospital patients in a, another bacteria, Klebsiella, Klebsiella pneumoniae, which, as its name suggests, causes things like pneumonia infections. Mm. So, yeah, it's a pretty scary stuff. Um, and also the scientists said that while they were writing their report up, they also found uh, some of this DNA in samples that were submitted that seem to have come from Malaysia. So it suggests that it's already spread to Malaysia, perhaps. It's not totally definite. The samples were sent from Malaysia. It doesn't mean they were actually found in Malaysia, but it is kind of a bit concerning. It's elsewhere in Asia. And also I found uh, someone, and a biologist writing about it, a bloke called Mike the Mad Biologist. So I think we can believe what he says. And he did a bit of a search for the particular gene sequences in proteins. And he found um, the matching a salmonella sample from 2011 reported from Portugal. So it may be elsewhere in the world as well. Hmm. So... Back to the question, is this the end of the world? 
Well, it's not necessarily. Um, there have been similar mechanisms that have kind of not amounted to much. There was one earlier this century in another sort of serious last resort antibiotic called vancomycin, and that caused quite a bit of fear. But it hasn't led to a new epidemic of infections. There's only been a, you know, a handful of, of infections seen. So it doesn't necessarily um, lead to yeah, an outbreak of a wildly um, sort of resistant bacteria. And remember, we were talking about this being a, um, you know, a bacteria of last resort anyway, and people hardly ever use colistin. So it's not like suddenly all these patients who rely on colistin are going to be suffering. Uh, also, it's possible that in this case, the, um, the, the way that the, the mutations are changing the, the cell walls could make the bacteria kind of weaker in some way as well. So it's not quite clear whether these bacteria are going to be able to survive long in the wild. But it does mean it's necessary to try and monitor the spread of this particular genes. And also, I guess, means that it's really a bad idea to use antibiotics in factory farming. Um, now, this is, this is a serious issue that kind of everyone is talking about with this because it is, this, this antibiotic is not used in humans much. It is used a lot in agriculture, mostly in China. Uh, in fact, it's mostly made in China. And they reckon that the trade in this particular antibiotic is worth about $229 million. So there's a lot of people make a lot of money out of making and selling this thing. But, you know, really if they're making money out of it, is it worth the health, health risk? that is, is driving, and I think we, most of us would say no. Um, the good news, I guess the optimistic thing, is if they do stop using it, then there is no selection pressure on the bacteria to keep the, the plasmids in their genes, or the genes in their plasmids. Um, plasmids are you know, expensive for bacteria to produce because they have to expend extra energy to produce them, so if there's no selection pressure, then they, they'll stop making them. So we could kind of remove the resistance, but it is more and more reason, I guess, not for people around the world to not use antibiotics in their in their farmed animals. Hmm. Um, I don't know whether that means it is the end of the world or not. I think they're basically saying there are ways around it. Essentially, we can stop this kind of resistance. But yeah, people need to do the right thing. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. So when we talk about cyborgs, most people probably think of anthropomorphic human-shaped robots from science fiction stories. Uh, But scientists in Sweden have taken cybernetic organisms in a completely different direction. Uh, A team of researchers from Linkoping University who work in the Laboratory for Organic Electronics have effectively grown electronic circuits inside living plants. Is this like Triffids meet the Terminator? Kind of. <laughs> kind of is, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, the leader of the team, Professor Magnus Berggren, has been working on electronic circuits uh, printed on paper since the 1990s. So that's his background. He's, uh, you know, an electrical electronics guy. Um And recently, he shifted his focus to the potential for growing circuits inside plant tissue. Um, And he noted that there are similarities between 
plant biology and electronics the way they the way they work there's sort of analogous to electronics in some ways um, and he set out to find a way to use the normal functions of the plants themselves to actually build circuits for him right so what sort of plants are we talking um it's ac- actually a rose a rose oh. yeah so, so ro- rosocop or <laughs> rosocop yes yeah. um so what they do is they take this water soluble polymer called pedot s uh, and that's absorbed by the plant and is deposited along the vascular pathways to form continuous layers throughout the plant tissue. Okay. So it's it's a water-soluble plastic, effectively, that just gets sucked up by the plant and then deposited all the way along the xylem and mm. uh, tissue in the plant. So the polymer itself is semiconductive, so it will carry an electrical current. And... The network of veins in the plant creates natural circuits, but but just kind of random circuits, sort of. Really. Well, sort of. I mean, they're they're they're, they're systematic because yeah. they do have to go to all oh, areas yeah, yeah, of yeah, the plant. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they go from the bottom to the top. Um, but they do they, do they do a function? Can you design it? Do now that is what they then went to work on in a paper called Electronic Plants, which <laughs> they published in the journal Science Advances. Uh, They've outlined all of their research in detail, explaining how functioning electronic circuits have been grown in rose plants. Um, So they also used a a modified version of this uh, PEDOT S polymer, and they were able to create functional circuits in the leaves of the rose plant that act in a similar way to an LCD display. Why, you ask? Was it actually a display or just... Well, Elliot Gomez, who was working on this part of the project, uh, said, we can create electrochromatic plants in which the leaves change colour. It's cool, he said, but maybe not so useful. So at least he was honest. Um, I don't actually know why you would want the leaves of a rose plant to change colour, but they can do it. So it's good to know. Yeah, well, it might getting the flowers to change colour, you think would be would be more useful for well, that, roses. I mean, yeah, I mean, if they if they could make somehow a blue rose, they would make uh, millions of dollars probably. Um, but the plant circuits were able to conduct electricity and function without disrupting the plant's other functions of transporting nutrients and water and all those things that vascular tissue is meant to do, right? Um, which keeps the plant alive. So potentially these things could be operating and the plant could still be alive, which is kind of okay. important mm. if you're actually going to bother doing this stuff. But um, So Professor Bergeron believes this is a whole new field of research and technology uh, and thinks that you could potentially use plants to grow fully functioning electronic equipment. Um, and he's sort of thinking along the lines of sensing equipment. So you could have, you know trees or shrubs that act as sensors in the wild yeah, right. without standing out from the you know from the natural environment um, yeah, and also things like antennas so if you think about all of the mobile technology that we've got you could have you know wi-fi trees or something like that oh, that'll oh, make a, camping a, great yeah <laughs> so you'll, ne- you'll never be able to escape the uh the uh electronics and you won't be able to tell what's what's out there so you know it's it's kind of amazing that they've developed this technology but i still am baffled to why they actually bothered your story sounds more end of the world to me than <laughs> if the world's ending in a different way oh god so so using the vascular system the plant to do they could conduct sound waves and they could be a, make a xylem phone 
they could. Yeah, very could do good. That. Yeah, yes, um, I don't think it was a good joke. <laughs> <laughs> do wait? Do the polymers move through the plants? Do you know? They move through the plant and then they set and in, then they, in okay. place. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Hmm. But yeah, it's it's it was the weirdest bit of research I saw all week. So there okay. you go. Yeah. Right. Well Look done. out for that. Yeah. Um, so today I have Inka Valtaim here with me, and she's going to be discussing some of the work that she's done with Brolgas. Inka is a PhD student at the University of Melbourne and at Federation University, and her story is actually pretty interesting. Um, so hi, Inka. Hi, Manisha. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, I'm doing a PhD uh, through Federation University and University of Melbourne. I've been doing it for a few years and I've been basically studying the movements of brogas by putting GPS transmitters on them. And I've also been involved in a couple of other water bird movement studies looking at migration of little curly, which is a shorebird that travels from northern Australia all the way up to Siberia so they do these massive migrations and more recently I've also been involved in doing some tracking of Australasian bitterns which use uh, rice paddocks up in the New South Wales Riverina. So I'm generally interested in animal movements and looking at them from a point of view of using that information to conserve and manage their habitats and their populations. Cool. Um, so if we can just backtrack a bit, what's a brolga and where do you find them? So brolga is a bird Ooh, cool. and it's a large wetland bird. It's a crane, so it's one of the 15 cranes in the world and it occurs in Australia and there's also a small population in Papua New Guinea, but we don't know much about that one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more common up in northern Australia, but we've also got a small population here in Victoria and the core part of the Victorian population is in southwest Victoria. Okay. And it's threatened in Victoria, South Australia, and New South Wales. Um, do the populations, like, do individuals from populations move around to each spot? So before I started my research, we basically knew absolutely nothing about movements of brogas. Okay. Which is quite interesting because the species is very understudied in general and in comparison to northern america europe and asia where they've done lots of work on tracking migratory cranes we've basically got no information about the movements of brogas in australia so we don't really know we assume that there's no movement between the southern and northern australian populations but no one's actually tested that before yeah how would you go about studying their movement So they're quite a shy bird and they are also quite large. They stand up to about 1.5 metres tall and it's really hard to approach them. So you can't really study their movements just by looking at them or observing them. Mm -hmm. So the only way really is to put some kind of markers on them, either colour bands or GPS transmitters. Um, So that's how I went about it in my study. And right. GPS transmitters are good in that you can put them on the birds and you don't have to disturb them. So they, they can do what they normally do naturally in their habitats and without having the human disturbance. And 
all I had to do was actually set up my computer and download the data onto my computer. I, I could see where they were going yeah, right. in, the, in the landscape. Right. Um, and how long do the GPS trackers last for? They varied a little bit. So I had two types. One was a battery type and one was a solar-powered type. And the battery ones lasted for between six months and about a year and a half. And some of the solar-powered ones went up to four years. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, okay, so you mentioned that there are these massive cranes. Yeah. So how did you capture it? How did you put these GPS trackers on them? Yeah, so that was a bit of a challenge. So when I first went out into the field and tried to work out how to catch these birds, I could get to about 300, 400 metres from them and then they'd take off. And I'm just I picturing thought, you out there with a big butterfly net trying to catch them. <laughs> Probably not. No. So some of the farmers said that they could get really close with, with tractors and I did contemplate jumping on one of their tractors with a hand net, um, but uh, I thought better of it. So basically what I ended up doing was in the first year when I couldn't catch the adults, I just couldn't get close enough and none of the methods I tried worked. So I thought, well, I'll catch the babies that can't fly because they can't get away from me so I put color bands on the chicks and then the next year with the help of a crane expert who had actually happened to be in Australia for a conference and got in touch with me he'd suggested that I'd get a couple of taxidermy brogers so basically stuffed brogers that I could put out into the paddock to fool the birds and bring them in to my traps and where did you, did you just have taxidermy bloggers sitting around at home or? Well, when this crane expert suggested that I get two threatened species, individuals stuffed, I wondered how I was going to actually get those birds because they're not easy to catch. Catch. Yeah. <laughs> and, and obviously you can't get a permit to kill them and kill stuff them, them. And, yep. and taxidermy them. So... There's a sanctuary just southwest of Melbourne, about um, 60 kilometres or so, closer to Geelong, and it's called Serendip Sanctuary, and they've got a captive population that used to be used for breeding brogas and then reintroducing them into the wild in the mid-1990s. So I got quite lucky because they actually just happened to have two dead brogas in the freezer. Lovely. Yeah, so... They were really kind enough to actually provide those birds to me for taxidermy, which were then um, done by Dean Smith at the Museum of Victoria, and he did a great job. They look very lifelike. Yeah, I've seen photos. They do look pretty lifelike. Um, Did you think it could work right off the bat, or did you have any hesitations putting out these taxidermy brogas to attract your live ones? Well... I didn't have any hesitations because a lot of other methods had already worked. So I thought, well, I might as well just try anything. Yeah. Um, and one of the other key things in the success of using the taxidermy brogas was using their call to actually bring them into the paddock first. And then the taxidermy brogas basically worked like a magnet, bringing the birds in closer to right, where right. the traps were. Okay. Oh, so yeah. So you had some sort of a way of catching the bird then you're not just running out there that's right yeah so we had what are called noose lines so it's it's a trap which is a line 
made basically a fishing line and it's it had loops in it. Okay. So the idea is that the bird walks through a loop and as it takes another step it gets caught in it okay. as the as the noose tightens and yep. and then you sprint like hell. Yep. Yep, <laughs> sounds about right. Um cool. That sounds interesting. Um did you have any challenges with your work or did you have anything go wrong or it sounds like there's many things that could go wrong with this. Yeah, so there were quite a lot of challenges along the way. I mean one of the first things is obviously it is a large bird. It's yep. about the same size as I am. So okay. they're a bit of a handful, so you you can't catch them on your own, so you always you always have to have other people helping you. The other challenge was that brogers use agricultural areas, so we often had stock in some of the paddocks, and there was actually one time that the um, crane expert, Felipe, was um, helping me, and we were in a lie-down hide, which is basically we were lying on our bellies, in the paddock, in the stubble, waiting for the birds to arrive. And we'd been told by the farmer that it was all clear and there was no stock in there, no one coming in. And then we saw someone come towards us in a ute, basically pushing sheep out of the paddock, and the sheep got caught in our traps. Oh, no. (laughs) So that was not great. Um, And so that was, yeah, we, we... we did get out of that one, but obviously um, that was one of the challenges that we had to work around was yeah, having yeah. stock in, in the paddock. So then after that, we actually tried to target paddocks that didn't have yeah. any other animals using them. Yeah. Um, and I guess the other challenge was, yeah, trying to work out what worked. Uh, I got the first transmitters on 18 months after I actually started. So it was a, it was a long process, but... Yeah. But and I guess you didn't have much to go off of, hey, like you had to kind of come up with the trapping methods and the banding methods all on your own. So. Yeah, that's right. So because there's so little known about brogas and, and basically no one had done this before, I had to really work out what size bands were appropriate, right. what kind of transmitters were appropriate, how to fit them, how to catch the birds. So there wasn't really any local knowledge about the method, most appropriate methods to capture them right. here. There, there's methodologies published from other crane species and I tried a lot of those methods and they just weren't suitable. Um, and the other thing that was really important to consider was the welfare of the brogas, so to actually cat, catch the birds safely so that there were no injuries yep. from the actual trapping methods themselves. Yep. Well, um, cool. So just to wrap up, is there any anything you've learned, any big messages you'd like everybody to know? Yeah, so I guess the main thing um, that we learned from this project was the movement patterns of the birds. So we knew absolutely nothing about where they move to between their breeding and non-breeding areas. Right. Are there any regular flight paths that they take? How big an area are they using at the non-breeding as well as the breeding areas so all these aspects of sort of basic biology that was pretty much unknown we've managed to unravel a lot of that sort of mystery of movements and and also learned a lot about their habitat use so a lot of this information can now be used on the ground to manage as well as conserve the species and and make better decisions about their their kind of population management. Yeah, and I guess that's really important, especially if the population's already vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. Great. 
Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Manisha. Okay, that's it for another episode of Lost in Science, where we have learned about scary new antibiotic resistance. We have learned about robo-roses, and we have learned about um, taxidermied brogas and tracking them. Uh, Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can email us, please do, at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can Facebook us, you can Twitter us, or you can podcast us, or you can listen to us on the radio when this same time next week, Stu, Manisha, Claire and Chris will get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.